Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. The Jack the Ripper crimes in London, England in 1888, as reported in the New York Times. London Crime and Gossip, a terribly brutal murder in Whitechapel from our own correspondent. London, August 31st. A strangely horrible murder took place at Whitechapel this morning. The victim was a woman who at three o'clock was knocked down by some man unknown and attacked with a knife. She attempted to escape and ran a hundred yards, her cries for help being heard by several persons in adjacent houses. No attention was paid to her cries, however, and when found at daybreak, she was lying dead in another street several hundred yards from the scene of the attack. Her head was nearly severed from her body, which was literally cut to pieces, one gash reaching from the pelvis to the breastbone. The strangest part of the affair is that this is the third murder of the kind which has been done lately. In the last one, two weeks ago, the victim was stabbed thirty-nine times. In the case before it, some months ago, the victim was stabbed with a stick which was forced through the body. All three victims have been women of the lowest class. All three murders have taken place in the same district at about the same hour and have been characterized by the same inhuman and ghoul-like brutality. The police have concluded that the same man did all three murders and that the most dangerous kind of a lunatic is at large. The excitement is intense over the matter and the women in Whitechapel are afraid to stir out of their doors unprotected after dark. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Whitechapel startled by a fourth murder. From the New York Times, dated September 9, 1888, recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. Old World News by Cable. Whitechapel startled by a fourth murder. From our own correspondent. London, September 8th. Not even during the riots and fog of February 1886 have I seen London so thoroughly excited as it is tonight. The Whitechapel fiend murdered his fourth victim this morning and still continues undetected, unseen, and unknown. There is a panic in Whitechapel, which will instantly extend to other districts should he change his locality, as the four murders are in everybody's mouth. The papers are full of them, and nothing else is talked of. The latest murder is exactly like its predecessor. The victim was a woman streetwalker of the lowest class. She had no money, having been refused lodgings shortly before because she lacked eight pence. Her throat was cut so completely that everything but the spine was severed, and the body was ripped up, all the viscera being scattered about. The murder in all its details was inhuman to the last degree, and, like the others, could have been the work only of a bloodthirsty beast in human shape. It was committed in the most daring manner possible. The victim was found in the backyard of a house in Hanbury Street at six o'clock. At 5.15 the yard was empty. To get there, the murderer must have led her through a passageway in the house full of sleeping people and murdered her within a few yards of several people sleeping by open windows. To get away, covered with blood as he must have been, he had to go back through the passageway and into a street filled with early market people, Spitalfields being close by. Nevertheless, not a sound was heard and no trace of the murderer exists. All day long, Whitechapel has been wild with excitement. The four murders have been committed within a gunshot of each other, but the detectives have no clue. The London police and detective force is probably the stupidest in the world. The man called Leather Apron, of whom I cabled you, is still at large. 
He is well known, but they have not been able to arrest him, and he will doubtless do another murder in a day or so. One clue discovered this morning by a reporter may develop into something. An hour and a half after the murder, a man with bloody hands, torn shirt, and a wild look entered a public house half a mile from the scene of the murder. The police have a good description of him and are trying to trace it. The assassin, however, is as cunning as he is daring. Both in this and in the last murder, he took but a few minutes to murder his victim in a spot which had been examined but a quarter of an hour before. Both the character of the deed and the cool cunning alike exhibit the qualities of a monomaniac. Such a series of murders has not been known in London for a hundred years. There is a bare possibility that it may turn out to be something like a case of Jekyll and Hyde, as Joseph Taylor, a perfectly reliable man who saw the suspected person this morning in a shabby dress, swears that he has seen the same man coming out of a lodging house in Wilton Street, very differently dressed. However that may be, the murders are certainly the most ghastly and mysterious known to English police history. What adds to the weird effect they exert on the London mind is the fact that they occur while everybody is talking about Mansfield's Jekyll and Hyde at the Lyceum. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Dismay in Whitechapel from the New York Times, October 1, 1888. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. Dismay in Whitechapel. Two more murdered women found from our own correspondent. London, September 30th. The Whitechapel fiend has again set that district and all London in a state of terror. He murdered not one woman, but two last night, and seems bent on beating all previous records in his unheard-of crimes. His last night's victims were both murdered within an hour, and the second was disemboweled like her predecessors, a portion of her abdomen being missing as in the last case. He contented himself with cutting the throat of the other, doubtless because of interruption. Both women were streetwalkers of the lowest class, as before. These crimes are all of the most daring character. The first woman was killed in the open roadway within a few feet of the main street, and though many people were within a few feet distance, no cry was heard. This was at midnight. Before one o'clock the second victim was found, and she was so warm that the murder must have taken place but a few minutes before. This was in Mitre Square, which is but a few blocks distant from the Bank of England in the very heart of the business quarter. The square is deserted at night, but is patrolled every half hour at least, by the police. These make six murders to the fiend's credit, all within a half mile radius. People are terrified and are loud in their complaints of the police who have done absolutely nothing. They confess themselves without a clue, and they devote their entire energies to preventing the press from getting at the facts. They deny to reporters a sight of the scene or bodies, and give them no information whatever. The assassin is evidently mocking the police in his barbarous work. He waited until the two preceding inquests were quite finished, and then murdered two more women. He has promised to murder twenty in all, and has every prospect of uninterrupted success. Also, as London Press dispatches, London, September 30th. This morning the whole city was again startled by the news that two more murders had been added to the list of mysterious crimes that have recently been committed in Whitechapel. At an early hour it was known that another victim had been murdered, and a report was also current that there was still another victim. This report proved true. The two victims, as in the former cases, were dissolute women of the poorest class. That the motive of the murderer was not robbery is shown by the fact that no attempt was made to despoil the bodies. The first murder occurred in a narrow court off Burner Street at an early hour in the morning between the windows of a foreigner's socialist club. 
A concert was in progress, and many members of the club were present, but no sound was heard from the victim. The same process had been followed as in the other cases. The woman had been seized by the throat and her cries choked, and the murderer, with one sweeping cut, had severed her throat from ear to ear. A clubman, on entering the court, stumbled over the body, which was lying only two yards from the street. A stream of warm blood was flowing from the body into the gutter. The murderer had evidently been disturbed before he had time to mutilate his victim. The second murder was committed from three to four hours later in Mitre Square, five minutes' walk from the scene of the first crime. Policemen patrol the square every ten minutes. The body of the unfortunate woman had been disemboweled, the throat cut, and the head severed. The heart and lungs had been thrown aside, and the entrails were twisted into the gaping wound around the neck. The incisions show a rough dexterity. The work of dissection was evidently done with the utmost haste. Pending the report of the doctors, it is not known whether or not a portion of the viscera was taken away. The doctors, after a hasty examination of the body, said they thought it must have taken about five minutes to complete the work of the murderer, who then had plenty of time to escape the patrol. Mitre Square, the scene of the second murder, is a thoroughfare. Many people pass through the square early on Sunday morning on their way to prepare for market in the notorious Petticoat Lane. The publicity of the place adds to the daringness of the crime. The police, who have been severely criticized in connection with the Whitechapel murders, are paralyzed by these latest crimes. As soon as the news was received at police headquarters, a messenger was dispatched for Sir Charles Warren, Chief Commissioner of Police, who was called out of bed and at once visited the scene of the murders. The inhabitants of Whitechapel are dismayed. The vigilance committees which were formed after the first crimes were committed had relaxed their efforts to capture the murderer. At several meetings held in Whitechapel tonight, it was resolved to resume the work of patrolling the streets in the district in which the murders have occurred. The Burner Street victim was Elizabeth Stride, a native of Stockholm who resided in a common lodging house. The name of the other victim is not known. In consequence of the refusal of Home Secretary Matthews to offer a reward for the arrest of the Whitechapel murderer, the people of the East End on Saturday petitioned the Queen herself to authorize the offering of a reward. Dr. Blackwell, who was called to view the remains of the Burner Street victim, gave it as his opinion that the same man, evidently a maniac, had committed both murders. The Burner Street victim had evidently been dragged back by a handkerchief worn around the throat. The inquest will be held at 11 o'clock Monday morning. Four doctors will be on the jury. The inquest on the Mitre Square victim will probably be held on Tuesday. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. The Whitechapel Murderer Still Untracked From the New York Times, October 2nd, 1888 Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett London's Awful Mystery, The Whitechapel Murderer Still Untracked From Our Own Correspondent London, October 1st Excitement over the Whitechapel murders has steadily increased during the day, the evening papers devoting all available space to the gory details. As in the preceding cases, however, the murderer continues unknown and unsuspected. The Burner Street victim has been identified as Elizabeth Stride, alias Long Liz, a widow. The other is still unknown, but is believed to be a streetwalker known as May. Her face is so badly cut that it is difficult to recognize her. The coroner has begun an inquest on the first woman. As before, in all these horrible crimes, the duty of investigation seems to devolve on the coroner, and the detectives sit at the inquest listening to the sworn testimony to find out who did it. 
the whole police management of the cases, as indeed the system under which they work, is idiotic in the extreme. Indignation meetings were held in several places in Whitechapel today to denounce Sir Charles Warren and Home Secretary Matthews. The Daily Telegraph this morning called loudly for Matthews's dismissal, since he had not sense enough to resign. A petition to the Queen is in preparation, asking her to offer a reward, Matthews having stupidly refused. The Lord Mayor promptly offered £500 reward this morning, the second murder having been committed within the precincts of the city. This, with other private rewards, makes a total of £1,200. There are any amount of theories published, some scientific, others ingenious, and others stupid. There are plenty of clues also, but they are slight, and show no signs of developing the murderer. The only trace considered of any value is the story of a watchboy who saw a man and woman leave Aldgate Station going towards Mitre Square. The man returned shortly afterward alone. The police have a good description of him. The daring character of the murders is evident from the fact that two people at least saw a man and the woman together in the Burner Street gateway and one saw him throw her down. He went away and left her there, but it was half an hour before it was known that she had been murdered. In the second case, a policeman swears that he was not absent over fifteen minutes from Mitre Square and must have been watched by both man and woman as he went through, they following. The police confess tonight that they have no clues. A number of men have been arrested, but all were released. There is every prospect at present that these murders, like their predecessors, will pass undetected. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Another Mysterious Murder Brought to Light From the New York Times, October 3, 1888 Recorded for LibriVox.org by Howlett. London's Record of Crime Another Mysterious Murder Brought to Light From Our Own Correspondent London, October 2nd The Carnival of Blood Continues Is an extremely strange state of affairs altogether Because before the Whitechapel murders began Several papers called attention to the fact That there had been more sanguinary crimes Committed in London and its vicinity this summer Than ever before known in this city In the same space of time The Whitechapel assassin has now murdered six victims And crimes occur daily But pass unnoticed in view of the master murderer's work In the East End Last Friday, a man in Pimlico sharpened a knife in the presence of his wife, threatening her all the time, and then cut off her head with it. This rather dramatic crime passed off without particular notice, the papers giving it only a brief paragraph. This afternoon, however, a discovery was made which was even more horrible than any of the recent deeds. A few days ago, the right arm of a woman was found by some boys in the Thames near Waterloo Bridge. It belonged to a young woman, was plump, shapely, and graceful, and had been rudely hacked from the shoulder. It was believed at first to be evidence of another murder, but as no young woman had been murdered so far as known, the theory that it was a specimen from a dissecting room was generally adopted. The police took immediate possession of it, and refused absolutely either to give any information concerning its appearance or to say whether it pointed to a fresh crime. The boys who found it said it was a well-preserved human arm, but scarred and excoriated in many places, as if from the action of quick lime. The police refused to say yes or no to this, but hinted or said that it was all a mistake and that the thing found was merely the old skeleton of an arm with no flesh on it. This afternoon, however, a discovery was made in Pimlico, a mile up the river from where the arm was found, which throws some light on the mystery. There are some old buildings on the embankment, close to the Parliament houses and almost in the shadow of Westminster Abbey, and workmen are engaged in tearing these down to prepare a site for the new police station. 
As they destroyed an old vault today, they came upon a shapeless mass, which upon closer inspection proved to be the trunk of the body of a young woman, perhaps thirty years old. The horribly mutilated head, arms, and legs have been cut off and carried away, only the trunk being left. The body was not ripped, however, as in the Whitechapel cases. It was very much decomposed, and in fact must have been there many weeks. The police removed it to a mortuary, and tomorrow morning the doctors will adjust the arms beside it to see if they fit. It is now admitted by the police that the second arm found matched the first one. Should the arms belong to the body, they may serve as a clue. They seem in a much better state of preservation than the body, however, and should they not fit, they will stand as evidence of a second horrible crime yet unrevealed. There is no clue to the identity of the murdered woman. In fact, so many people disappear daily in this great city that the record of disappearances will not be of much assistance. This crime, single or double as it may be, has no connection with the Whitechapel murders. Its method is different in every possible respect, and should it prove to be two murders instead of one, it will show an independent operation of the Whitechapel nature. Pimlico is two miles from Whitechapel. The master murderer of the latter district has done all his work in one small area, and there is no clue whatever to him. Tonight, a crazy man, with blood stains on his coat, who was flourishing surgical knives and making a general spectacle of himself in Milk Street in the city, was arrested, but he proves to be innocent. Another suspect was arrested in Chingford, Ifling Forest today, but he easily proved an alibi. No one suspected is at present in custody, though all Scotland Yard is at work on the case. Also, Associated Press Dispatch, London, October 2nd. An inquest was held today on the body of the woman found murdered in a narrow court off Berners Street Sunday morning. A sister of the victim was called and deposed that she was awoke at one twenty o'clock Sunday morning and heard a sound which she thought was made by a person falling to the ground. She was convinced that her sister was dead and after reading the accounts of the murder in the newspapers went to the morgue and recognized the body of the murdered woman as that of her sister. The house in which the witness resides is several miles from Berner Street. The murder is believed to have been committed at about 12.50 o'clock Sunday morning. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. The Whitechapel Murders from the New York Times, October 5, 1888. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. The Whitechapel Murders, London, October 4th. The British Medical Journal, referring to the Whitechapel murders, says, The coroner's theory that the assassin's work was carried out under the impulse of a pseudo-scientific mania has been exploded by the first attempt at serious investigation. It is true that a foreign physician inquired a year ago as to the possibility of securing certain parts of the body for the purpose of scientific investigation, but no large sum was offered, and the physician in question is of the highest respectability and came exceedingly well accredited. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. The Murders in London from the New York Times, October 6, 1888. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. The Murders in London. London, October 5th. Sir Charles Warren, chief of the Metropolitan Police Force, has decided to employ bloodhounds in his efforts to discover the perpetrator of the Whitechapel murders. The police place confidence in the story of George M. Dodge, a seaman who states that in August last he met a Malay cook named Alaska, with whom he had previously been acquainted on shipboard in a music hall in London, 
and that Alaska told him he had been robbed of all he had by a woman of the town, and threatened that unless he found the woman and recovered his property, he would kill and mutilate every Whitechapel woman he met. The police are searching everywhere for the Malay. Acting on information which has been furnished them, the police have seized and occupied several houses in that section. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. The Parnell Inquiry and Another Butchery From the New York Times, November 10, 1888 Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett Exciting London Events The Parnell Inquiry and Another Butchery By Commercial Cable from Our Own Correspondent London, November 9th From today's proceedings of the Parnell Commission it seems likely that the inquiry hereafter will go on in a cloud of sparks knocked out by partisan conflict. The Irish members are deeply indignant at the persistent pro-Times rulings of Justice Hannon, and only less vexed with their English lawyers, who have so tamely accepted these rulings without protest. The mutterings against this supineness have finally grown so loud that Sir Charles Russell was today impelled to try a sharp fall with Justice Hannon. The incident was exciting at the time, but it is most interesting as presaging a partisan struggle from this out, with the great probability of somebody going to prison for contempt of court. The most eligible candidate for this distinction appears at present to be William O'Brien, who this week attacks the Commission in United Ireland as a one-sided fraud. The discovery today of the Seventh Whitechapel murder, this time believed to have been committed in broad daylight and involving the most terrible wholesale mutilation it is possible to imagine, overshadows all other topics in the London mind tonight. Bloodhounds are out, but I am unable to learn at this hour that they have discovered anything. The conclusion is now universal that the assassin is a periodic lunatic who, unless detected at once, is likely to commit a fresh series of crimes within a few days before his frenzy passes away. Also, London, November 9th. At eleven o'clock this morning, the body of a woman cut into pieces was discovered in a house on Dorset Street, Spitalfields. The police are endeavoring to track the murderer with the aid of bloodhounds. The appearance of the body was frightful, and the mutilation was even greater than in the previous cases. The head had been severed and placed beneath one of the arms. The ears and nose had been cut off. The body had been disemboweled, and the flesh was torn from the thighs. Some of the organs were missing. The skin had been torn off the forehead and cheeks. One hand had been pushed into the stomach. The victim, like all the others, was disreputable. She was married, and her husband was a porter. They lived together at spasmodic intervals. Her name is believed to have been Lizzie Fisher, but to most of the habitués of the haunts she visited she was known as Mary Jane. She had a room in the house where she was murdered. She carried a latch key, and no one knows at what hour she entered the house last night, and probably no one saw the man who accompanied her. Therefore it is hardly likely that he will ever be identified. He might easily have left the house at any time between one and six o'clock this morning without attracting attention. The doctors who have examined the body refuse to make any statement until the inquest is held. Three bloodhounds belonging to private citizens were taken to the place and put on the scent of the murderer, but they were unable to keep it for any great distance, and all hope of running the assassin down with their assistance will have to be abandoned. The murdered woman told a companion last evening that she was without money and would commit suicide if she did not obtain a supply. It has been learned that a man, respectably dressed, accosted the victim and offered her money. They went to her lodgings on the second floor of the Dorset Street house. No noise was heard during the night, and nothing was known of the murder until the landlady went to the room early this morning to ask for her rent. The first thing she saw on entering the room were the woman's breasts and viscera lying on a table. 
Dorset Street is short and narrow and is situated close to Mitre Square and Hanbury Street. In the House of Commons today, Mr. Conabare asked the question whether, if it was true that another woman had been murdered in London, General Warren, the chief of the Metropolitan Police, ought not to be superseded by an officer accustomed to investigate crime. The question was greeted by cries of, Oh, oh! The Speaker called, Order, order, and said that notice must be given of the question in the usual way. Mr. Conabare replied, I have given private notice. The Speaker, the notice must be made in writing. Mr. Cunningham Graham then asked whether General Warren had already resigned, to which Mr. Smith, the government leader, replied no. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Sir Charles Warren Resigns From the New York Times, November 13, 1888 Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett Sir Charles Warren resigns. London, November 12th. General Sir Charles Warren, Chief of the Metropolitan Police, has tendered his resignation. It is understood that this action is due to the severe criticisms that have been made upon his efficiency recently in connection with the Whitechapel murders. In the House of Commons this afternoon, Mr. Matthews, the Home Secretary, announced the resignation of General Warren as Chief of the Metropolitan Police. The announcement was greeted with cheers. Mr. W. H. Smith, the government leader, said that an extra estimate would be presented to meet the expenses of the Parnell Commission. He also said that application had been made to the Irish government for access to certain documents, and that leave to examine these documents would be granted to the Council of both the Times and the Parnellites under certain conditions. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. His Arrest in London, Not His First Experience From the New York Times, November 19, 1888 Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett The Same Tumblety His Arrest in London, Not His First Experience The Dr. Tumblety, who was arrested in London a few days ago on suspicion of complicity in the Whitechapel murders, and who, when proved innocent of that charge, was held for trial in the Central Criminal Court under the special law covering the offenses disclosed in the late modern Babylon scandal, will be remembered by any number of Brooklynites and New Yorkers as Dr. Blackburn, the Indian herb doctor. He is the fellow who, in 1861, burst upon the people of Brooklyn as a sort of modern Count of Monte Cristo. He was of striking personal appearance, being considerably over six feet in height, of graceful and powerful build, with strong, marked features, beautifully clear complexion, a sweeping moustache, and jet black hair. He went dashing about the streets, mounted on a handsome light chestnut horse, and dressed in the costliest and most elaborate riding costumes, and soon had a stream of customers at his office and laboratory on Fulton Street near the City Hall. In these rides he was invariably accompanied by a valet as handsomely apparelled in horses himself, and a brace of superb English greyhounds. He boarded with a Mrs. Foster at 95 Fulton Street, then a fashionable quarter of the city, and cut a wide swath in the affections of the feminine lodgers. After a few months he dropped out of sight as suddenly and as mysteriously as he had appeared, and was next heard of as being implicated in the famous yellow fever importation and black bag plots that the rebel sympathizers tried to develop in New York during the Civil War. It was at this time that his relation to the celebrated Blackburn family of Kentucky became known, and he thereafter went by his real name instead of his curious assumed name, Tumblety. His interest in the two previously mentioned plots was, luckily for him, so slight that he was allowed to go unpunished, while several of his associates did not get off so easily. 
For several years after this he kept pretty well out of the public gaze, and then suddenly took up his herb doctoring business with its attendant swagger again. He visited both this city and Brooklyn at about semi-yearly intervals and became a member of several questionable clubs. He dropped out of sight some ten years ago, and the first that has been heard of him since is the news of his arrest and imprisonment in London. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Whitechapel Again Excited From the New York Times, November 22, 1888 Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett Whitechapel Again Excited London, November 21st Great excitement was occasioned this morning when it was reported that another woman had been murdered and mutilated in Whitechapel. The police immediately formed a cordon around the premises and an enormous crowd soon gathered. It was learned that another murder had been attempted upon a low woman by a man who had accompanied her to her lodging, but that in this instance his work had been frustrated. According to the woman's story, the man had seized her and struck her once in the throat with a knife. She had struggled desperately and had succeeded in freeing herself from the man's grasp and had screamed for help. Her cries had alarmed the man and he had fled without attempting any further violence. Some of the neighbors who had heard the woman's screams followed the murderer for about 300 yards when he disappeared from their sight. The woman says she is fully able to identify the man and gave a description of him to the police. The police are hopeful of soon capturing him. And later. Investigations by the police showed that the Whitechapel woman who reported this morning that she had been attacked by a man who went to her lodgings with her is of the lowest order. She suffered only a slight abrasion of the skin on her throat, and the police placed no credit in her story of an attack. They believe that she inflicted the injury herself while she was drunk. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Something about Dr. Tumblety. From the New York Times, November 23, 1888. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. Something about Dr. Tumblety. San Francisco, November 22nd. Chief of Police Crowley has lately been in correspondence with officials of Scotland Yard, London, regarding Dr. Tumblety, who is at present under arrest on suspicion of being implicated in the Whitechapel murders. The chief, in pursuing his investigations, discovered that the doctor still had quite a balance in the Hibernia Bank, which he left there when he disappeared from this city and which has never been drawn upon. Mr. Smythe of that institution says that he first met the doctor in Toronto, where he was practicing medicine in July 1858. He next met him in this city at the Occidental Hotel in March or April 1870. Tumblety rented an office at 20 Montgomery Street, where he remained until September 1870 and then disappeared as suddenly as he came. In 1871, the doctor turned up in New York. On October 29th, Chief Crowley sent a dispatch to the London detectives, informing them that he could furnish specimens of Tumblety's handwriting, and today he received an answer to send the papers at once.